Welcome back. The best money I ever spent, episode 15. I'll be quick. This is the final episode of season one as we prepare for a huge season two and a big media series that we're going to release with it. So through these 15 episodes of season one, I hope we're able to at least entertain a little bit. Hopefully you either learned something new or found a person or an asset or an area of interest that you weren't thinking about before. We hit the top 200 charts in business, top 50 in investing. I'm super, super appreciative. Looking forward to really blowing it out for season two this October in our new studio and museum space here in New York. So for this, the final episode of season one, I'll keep the intro short. We're talking money and real gems from Rich Antoniello, the founder and former CEO of Complex during its epic two-decade run. If you don't know, Complex is a media empire. It got bought twice and before the buyouts was named by Business Insider as one of the most valuable private companies in the world. So Rich was the architect that built Complex into the cultural force it is today, turning it from a print magazine to a network across all sorts of media. It's now known for some of the biggest, most profitable content properties on earth, like First We Feast, Hot One, Sneaker Shopping, the Complex Con Festival, and then a million other products and channels you probably see every day in one form or another. The common theme is that all of them set the bar on what's cool, and beyond making it cool, Rich made it profitable. And you hear more about that 20-year mission today. And as always, as a disclaimer, nothing on this episode should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any decision based on any of the information presented here. And with that, episode 15 of the best money I ever spent presented by Rally with a guy who knows how to find revenue, which in times like these is a skill above all else, Complex's Rich Antoniello. Rich, thank you for joining us, man. Sincerely appreciate it. Very, like very wave. happy to be here. The intro wave. Everybody listening can't see it, but it was the it was a it was a good little Brooklyn wave that he gave right before the uh, right before we jumped into it. But I want to start there, like a little bit of background story. I think a lot of people know your story. They know Complex. Um, you've done a lot of great interviews over the year too. So it's over the course of the last you know five or six years. There's a lot of good content to catch up on on Rich in particular. But you know, you're a Brooklyn guy. You have a story that doesn't necessarily lead to running one of the biggest media companies in the world. Connect those dots if you can, starting with, I think what you and I have talked about a bit, getting out of school and now you're hitting New York and you're trying to figure out what's next. What was the first step for you? Uh, you know, I wish it was more, I wish it was uh, so deliberate. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, I, and I, and I feel for these kids today, but like, dude, getting out of school, it was expensive as hell living in the city. And I know it's all relative, but at the end of the day, I mean, I was sheer panic. I got out of school. Luckily, you know, I got a ride and did pretty well with school. I didn't have I didn't have the overhang, but I took a job at Saatchi and Saatchi making $20,000 a year and had to bust my ass just to be able to live in the city. And, you know, I wish I could have been more deliberate and strategic at that time. It was more just coming from where I came from, going to a state school. My big thing was exposure. I was just like, the more people I meet, the more people I see do business, the more I'm going to learn. Like my dad was a UPS guy dropping off packages. So for me, I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to business and a lot of more senior seasoned executives and things like that. So I just wanted to be a sponge. And, you know, there's a lot, I, I want to say something. I just want to pull a string on that a little bit because I'm not saying it's not good to kind of try and push your career forward as hard and as fast as possible. But I think a lot of kids want to skip over some steps. And when I say that, I'm not saying like not trying to get ahead, but I'm saying 
you don't realize putting in the reps, putting in, you know, not to make a funny Allen Iverson joke, but practice, you know, do like hey, we're talking about practice, always talking about practice. You know, like, so I, what practice? But no, but but literally putting in those reps, getting confident, comfortable, watching other people deal with those situations, you know, osmosis, like picking up all those things. It is unbelievable because when you're finally in that spot, you're not, you know, licking your finger, putting it up, like praying. It's not, you know, your gut is going to be at a higher batting average because you've been there, done that, seen it. And I wish more and more of these kids would try and kind of hang in there. It's like, you know, a Twitter thread of 11 posts doesn't accelerate you and give you all the experience in the world to go accelerate everything. That's, that's that, that preparation and opportunity. It, it lends itself to luck in good situations. You know what I mean? Without question. That's right. So anyway, but getting back to what I like for me, it was all about exposure because I wasn't, I didn't have any ins. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any accelerants. So I knew I was going to have to create those all for myself. So my viewpoint was, and this was pre-social media. This was pre, this is when you used to actually drop off a resume at human resources. Like they shielded executives. You couldn't get to people back in the You're going to scare these kids right now, but that's absolutely what was happening. Well, yes. I mean, dude, that's our version of, I had to walk back and forth four miles in the snow. <laughs> in the snow with paper bags you know, on my feet. But, 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 but the, what the, what's real, that is real though. Like that is yeah. the way it was. There was no LinkedIn. There was no job search. There was no monster. There was no any of that. And, you know, I, what I liked about it is you had to put in a lot of hard work. So anybody who you finally did get to, they appreciated how hard you had to work to get there. If you didn't get in through like your dad playing golf with the right guy or your sister knowing, you know, like going to Harvard with this, the person who runs HR or this or that. And, you know, I, I just... It was uh, for me. It was like an experience and an and an and, and uh, an exposure aperture thing. Yeah, and you talked about this a little bit before. It's a good. It's a kind of segue into like leading into. You start. You're at Saatchi. You're getting feet on the ground. You're understanding what's happening in the business of media. But you talked about this in other podcasts and other interviews before. You were a smart kid in high school, first generation college graduate. You got that full ride, and you were in a situation where you didn't have these crazy prohibitive student loans. You get out of school. You thought about becoming a stockbroker at one point. I think came up. I've heard before. Oh. I don't know that. Well, not not a stockbroker. I wanted to actually be an uh, investment banker. I just, I want, I was like, I want to make money. And and uh, that's the question is like, that's where I want to go with it. Is that what is the, so where did that relationship with money come from then? So how did you, how did you think about it before? I wish it was was that complicated. It was more like, I just remember my parents sitting at the table at the end of the month. And, you know, my mom was a stay at home mom and my dad stretched to, to get a, like a tiny little attached house in Brooklyn. And, you know, was, I think the whole house was like 1400 square feet and, and, you know, they would make choices on which bills they were going to pay that month. And I, dude, I was like seven or eight years old. And I remember like hearing them, like not fight about it, but like, you know, just be uncomfortable about it. And like, I remember saying to myself, I was just like, I can't, that, I, that I can't have that. Like, I just can't ever have that. And then my father would remind me every time, like, I didn't get like a hundred on a test. He would mm-hmm. be like, you know what? He's like, you are going to have to work harder than everybody. So at the end of the day, just put in the work now. I know you're better than that. 
you don't want to live this life. I don't want you to live my life. So get off your ass. Stop hanging out with the wrong friends. Get your nose clean. Get your head straight and just get to work. That's a, that's good. That is life lessons that, that translate regardless of what the generation is or who it's coming from. No question. That is an understatement. It's it's one of those things too. So now to to bridge this gap between first job at Saatchi, leading into the job and what will become sort of the founding group and CEO complex. How do you bridge those two gaps? What was the steps in between? Because I'm assuming, again, it's one of those situations where it's a wild amount of work to get from that $20,000 a year job while bartending, while trying to think about what the future might look like and get your footing in this brand new industry. How do you even wind up at building Complex? What is the relationship with Mark Echo, who was one of the other founders from Complex? How's that kick into high gear? And at what point did that happen? I was at Saatchi and I was putting my time in. I was learning. I was really liking it. And uh, one of the, the women I worked for pulled me aside. She was kind of like my little bit of a loose mentor. And she goes, listen, she's like, I hate to tell you this. She's like, you're good at this, but this is not what you should be doing with your life. She's like this media evaluation and like, that's just not what you should be doing. I think you should get into sales and I think you should try and get into sales as fast as possible. And this was back in the day, like those early 90s. You used to have to have five to seven, if not 10 years experience in media to transition into sales because you were representing. There wasn't this proliferation of a ton of publishers and media brands and startups. It was like very hard to like start a magazine yeah. and start a television channel or a radio channel. And so things cost a lot of money and they didn't they had very experienced people in every one of these positions. So I was like, all right, that's great. But I'm like, I'm going to have to really try and figure this out. And I was lucky enough to uh, meet the ad director at Men's Journal magazine. And uh, he's like, why don't you come in and see me? And I was like, dude, I'm not even 25, just <laughs> FYI. And he goes, well, it's all good. Just come and see me. And I go into the Men's Journal office and I showed up at like 45 minutes early, by the way. And it, it's it's a quick story, but it's worth it. Um and I'm sitting there in my blue suit, white shirt, yellow tie, like bad Sears crap. Look at the um, part though, man. That's like, you know, the I'm first nervous, sales job. I'm nervous, I'm nervous as hell. Oh yeah, totally. Like, oh, this is, by the way, everyone wore suits back then. Everybody, even at Sachi. So Chris Sachs, the ad director, doesn't show up. This really bristly guy walks in and I, had, I know who he was because I did my research. It was this guy, Mark McDonald, who was the publisher of Men's Journal. And he pulls me in. I've told the story once before, but it's really worth hearing is he pulls me into his office and he goes, hey, uh, what, are you, what are you here for? And I'm like, oh, I'm here for the sales job. I'm here to meet Chris Sachs. He goes, ah, Chris is always late. Why don't you just come and talk to me? And he doesn't say who he is, whatever. We walk into his office, this big glass office, and he's got like bats and balls and like all this like stuff. The guy looks like George Brett, by the way, hmm. from the Royals. And uh, we sit down and he, I hand him my resume and he looks at it for like two minutes and goes, uh, I have no idea why the fuck you're here. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, not a question, just a statement. I'm like, what? And he goes, you have no experience. You, have no, you, don't, you haven't worked in outdoor. You worked in packaged goods. You've never sold anything. You look like you're 11 years old. He goes, why am I sitting here with you? And I'm just like, I sat there and I was like, I could either fold and cave not that I realized at the time he was testing me, but I was like, or I can just give it back to him. And I'm like, you know what? I go, Mark, let me make an analogy. Because I was like, all right, I got nothing to say from a factual perspective. 
but let me show him how I sell, how I think. Let me show him my thought process and the fact that I'm also not going to cave. I go, Mark, you're obviously a sports guy. Let me make a sports analogy for you. You're the Washington Redskins and you went like nine and seven last year. And, you know, you got you have a hole to plug in like the left tackle position, give up too many sacks, like whatever. And you got like a run. You could use another running back. I go, but here's like a star wide receiver. Like you got, you can draft Jerry Rice basically, and you can build a dynasty and win several championships, or you can plug in the really nice safe choice, this left tackle from Michigan. He won't give up as many sacks. You maybe you go 10 and six, but you still get knocked out in the divisional round. Yeah. Or do you want to go for it and build like, and he looks at me and he starts shaking his head and I'm thinking I got him. And he just goes, he goes, well, he goes, I know you can bullshit. He goes, but still doesn't change the fact that you have no experience whatsoever. And he goes, it's really going to be high. Two days later, I, I ended up meeting with Chris Sachs right after that. Two days later, they called me up and they're like, we want to give you the job. And like, that was a big thing at that point. Somebody took a shot at me, not just with no experience, but really young on a big job running like new, the New England area, like BMW, Timberland for like men's. This was huge stuff for men's journal. Yeah, that was a, that was a, also that was for, for anyone listening. That's a monster publication back then, too. That was really dictating a, similar to kind of like uh, what Complex became, what the culture was. That's for right. Like menswear for like what you would be doing and buying and the things you would be paying attention to. That was the be all end all at that point, too. That's that's right. And it was owned by Rolling uh, Jan Wenner, Rolling Stone, Us Magazine at the time and other things. And I got unbelievable four years experience. I worked there from 95 to 99. And Chris Sachs went after that, went over to launch Adventure Magazine for National Geographic. Mm -hmm. So he brought me over there and I got a chance to be kind of an entrepreneur. So I got to launch something from ground zero with an overhang of the, both a budget of a, like a large scale company, Natrio, and that mega brand. So that's where I got my taste for entrepreneurship, but oh, with training wheels. Like, yeah. so it was like a safety version of that. I, and I, I recommend that as well, like not to go back to this like experience thing, but if you have an opportunity, it's not, it's not either work in a corporate job or be an entrepreneur. There are very big entrepreneur opportunities at large scale corporate places to launch new products, new initiatives, and kind of do it in a very protected way that enables you to learn and kind of, like I said, have training wheels. Yeah. And then you're preparing yourself even more and, and making the batting average much higher when you actually go and launch your own thing. Yeah, no, learning on the job is a must now. It's not something you could really, you know, learn in college, go and just start it. You got to be in, you got to be in it a little bit more now. That's right. And I, there's no way I would have been as successful in with complex if I if I didn't have the four years experience at Nat Geo launching that brand and getting Adventure Magazine stood up. Um, yeah. And, and look, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Mark and Seth along the way uh, at the end of my career at Nat Geo. And you know, these guys, their, their idea and the concept of, you know, this of concentric circles and the fact that at that time it was really like GQ for fashion, Esquire for older guys, um, you know, uh, um, skate magazines or the source or, you know, double XL, like you had all these kind of verticals. And what was interesting is every one of those magazines, all of them were on my coffee table. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was interested in all of them. And I thought I wasn't an aberration. I was the norm. And that was the whole concept of complex, but with one difference. It wasn't just an amalgamation. It wasn't throwing a whole bunch of things into the blender. The concept really was, let's take hip hop as an attitude to set the tone and then bring in vertical interest points where hip hop as a culture is the cartilage that ties all of those together. So that was the lens and the prism that we brought to each of those topics from a hip hop perspective. And I don't, you know, I think it's kind of done now, but at the time hip hop really was blowing up, but it hadn't totally nah, taken yeah, it was over counter, all it, was, it was still kind of counterculture to a degree. If you were in New York, That's it right. made complete sense. But the idea then, which is so prevalent and so ubiquitous now that the idea of, of, of rap music, of all the cultural points that go with it in terms of like what people address, how people are dressing, what people are listening to, what they're eating, what they're doing, all those pieces matching up with fashion, with, with geopolitics, with all the things that we see now, it was way abstract back then. Now you would never, unless you're like in a very specific niche, whether it's watches or something like that, build for one specific vertical and never leave that vertical. Hip hop music kind of changed the trajectory and the direction of a million different pieces of media and, and pieces of sort of, you know, real products that we, kind of take for granted now because it was in like the late nineties, early two thousands, it was still counterculture to a certain degree. Which is amazing. Right. And you really think about, we've not seen, um, I, I even rock and roll. It was very influential to a lot of things, but nothing, I don't believe anything has ever been as pervasive from an influence perspective. I mean, attitudinally audience design, the style, Brands now have to have an attitude. And do you know why? Literally because of hip hop. Like that's what I don't think a lot of people really understand all the way to that degree. The amount of influence. And look, we were very early and we were very early having sneakers, art and design, all of those things as core tenants. They weren't peripheral topics for us. We weren't like trying to move into anything else. We were birthed out of that, right? So it was very organic to us. And instead of kind of participating in those categories, we kind of felt like we were a definer. So we always wanted to take a leadership position in setting what that tone was, not just reporting on it the way others yeah, do. In retrospect, it makes complete sense and it's obvious now, but I mean, that is kind of to me, like it was, it was the music brought consumerism in a way that didn't exist before and all those other verticals too. What was the, cause you came in, you know, built this brand out, it became profitable, but what was that, what was that aha moment? What was the point when you said, this is a business. We need to invest in content. We're going to make money doing it because media companies back then, again, the verticals aside, they weren't what they are today. So how did it become a money-making machine no. when so many others had tried to monetize content before and they only landed on ad revenue? They weren't thinking about anything else. Well, let me, let me conflate a whole bunch yeah. of things because the first thing is as an independent magazine that was basically funded by a clothing company up until the end of, we had just broken even at the end of six. And I went to uh, the CFO, believe it or not, this guy's name was Dick Thrush. Hmm. That is his actual name. And I was like, I got an idea. I'm like, I want to launch a uh, verticalized ad network. And he, he goes, I don't even know what that is. What is that? And by the way, this was 2006. So a lot of people didn't know what verticalized. Yeah, that was a brand new term in 2006 for sure. Right. You had, you had literally, you either had 
supposed vertical ad networks like Glam and other things that were basically like women, which by the way, is not verticalized because that's- No, so you're literally talking about 50% 50 of the potential money. So it's not like you're verticalizing that. Well, more than one. Yeah, of the spend way more, 50% of the population. That's right. So, or you had, and by the way, those were non-exclusive. Those were kind of like all bottom of the funnel bullshit, right? Or you had the portals at that time, Yahoo, AOL. But my viewpoint was, Let's give power to verticalized voices. And by the way, this is all, you're still previous to Facebook. Mm-hmm. MySpace and Friendster were not really creator platforms. They were more just social platforms, right? So social platforms hadn't flipped yet. It's not like that I saw the future and best-in-class voices are going to become the dominators of and get and use the democratization of social media to actually grow and have more influence than ever before. But I did believe because of my magazine background in the power of a very unique voice. And my viewpoint was those people who were really influencing youth culture were no longer writing for magazines, they were writing blogs. So I was like, let's invest in that. Let's go get exclusive deals with not the most, the biggest reach, but let's get the most influential blog. Things like Nice Kicks, Nah Right, you know, Slam X Hype, um, Freshness Magazine, um, kicks on fire and I could go on and on and on and on and on and on smash, right? Like the most influential music blogs, the most influential art they, and design blogs. They had blogs, such tight knit communities society. too, communities that would come out in droves. They had big open rates. They would spend money. Like it's not, they weren't these massive, you know, hundred million in reach Kardashian style brands, but they that's had right. such a specific but, but, consumer. That's right. But nobody was doing bottom of the funnel DTC e-commerce yet. And those guys were not big enough individually to have conversations with the Nikes, Verizons, Adidas, and McDonald's. So you needed to organize them under a, under like a hub of complex. And what we did is we put them all together to have mass reach and scale, but allowed for the verticalized authenticity and credibility to stay the same on a brand by brand basis. Sounds very dumb. Only but, now, when you're talking about something that was revolutionary back then, people thought those communities were these small communities that had small followings that would, that would print small money. And then by, by I don't want to say, I don't want to give it, I don't want to say aggregate because that makes it sound too easy. But the idea of bringing all those together and realizing you could curate. stitch together that consumer. It was, it was curate and then cross promote. And it wasn't just cross promotion of the, of the, um, the dollars, right? Of the ad dollars. But it was like, what are best in class? How do we, you know, each one had its own complex networks logo yeah. on the side, right? So it, it was almost a validation. And then we had a bar that would come up and roll through and give you stories across the whole it, yeah. network. So we would bring traffic across to everybody, right? Like we were the first curator of lifestyle. And what's interesting is that that really drove, we were the only one who was ever able to pull that off at scale, working with multiple other brands. Everybody else who are our quote unquote competitors were all, have always been individualized. They were never at, they were never large scale players with other partners. So we, that's why we could pull off something like a complex con where other people who've tried to do festivals can't even get 3,000 people to show up for free when we can get 75,000 people to pay tons of money to go and have an unbelievable experience. You know, like you see, what I'm trying to explain is not just how we did it, but what the thought process is. How do you differentiate versus everybody? How do you take something that is 
what you believe to be super important and drive that through every aspect of the business? What is that through line so that everybody who works for you can continue to be like, now I know what who we work with and who we don't work with. I know what we represent, what we don't represent. I know what we sell and what we don't sell. And, I, and we understand what we're trying to do as an overall goal. And not everybody is crystal clear yeah. like that because they a lot of people just chase like, oh, what's hot? Let's do our initiative against that. Are you a definer or are you a follower? That's the question you got to ask. But then, so let me ask you this then, the KPIs and the metrics that you were, you were working against because it became, you're talking about a, a run that's kind of unprecedented. Anybody who doesn't know what Complex was doing during that, that decade run and what they built to this point should Google it and get the full background story because they did something that no other media brand was capable of doing. Were the numbers and the KPIs that you had based on money figures? Was it dollars or was it reach? Was it something that you, you kind of did a mix of both? It was, it, by the way, it's not just even those. We had qualitative measurements constantly as well. Like, did we have, I know it sounds done now, but we always, did we have the highest engagement? Did we have the longest time spent on site? Did we have, like, did we have people, how many story, how many page views per visit? Like, we always held ourselves accountable not to one thing because the problem is in this day and age, right? No matter what you're good at and no matter what people come to you for, the one thing that is inarguable is whatever you do today, you know, even 15 years ago would change every six months. Now it changes it's every six days. Right? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Right? So, so, right. It's like there's, it's so. To measure yourself in one way, any K, any singular KPI, it never gives you the full picture of the accuracy of like what you mean to a consumer. By the way, a lot of people do revenue only as a thing because it's a KPI that you know is forced upon yeah, the you by or the whatever people else, you took money yeah. from as investors, right? So it's my 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 viewpoint is the reason we've been able to iterate the business so successfully from print to digital, from text to video, from, um, from, from web properties to social, from social to long form IP type IP game. We've been seven or eight different companies. And the reason we have been is two reasons. Number one, we never changed the topics we cover and the tone in which we cover them. We're always the definer. We stay true to who we are. We don't chase topics because we know what's next. And we're going to tell you what's next. So we have the qualitative side, but quantitatively, we never measured ourselves exclusively for one or two things. And we also never like there was no there's no finish line with media. People have to remember that like, you know, it, it's not like I wasn't like, oh, let me go sell this business and then hand it off to somebody else. And we're done. Like when we sold it the first time to Verizon and Hearst. All of our teams stayed on. We continued to operate this business. We continued to grow and stay relevant and continue to iterate this business. Media doesn't die. It's not only 24-7 on a day-to-day -day basis, but it also is not, it's not an arc with an ending unless you're dead, right? Like you have to continue to iterate and let it live or you age out with a brand. We've seen that with a lot of, you know, like one of my favorite publications for a long time Same. was Vibe, but Vibe decided to age up with everybody and it became irrelevant anybody who was younger, right? And, you know, you can't, if you're going to stay relevant to who you are and be a dictator of culture and tone and, and influence and impact, you have to continue to change 
The f- you have to iterate your distribution channels. You have to iterate your formats. You have to be innovative and you have to be ahead of the curve on all those things. Now, but it helps to stay grounded in, in your topic and your tone. Yeah, and never change. I mean, you said it too. It's not about chasing a trend because you're, if you're getting it, if it's being surfaced to you, it's probably too late anyway to try and chase that now and catch up with like a 17 year old TikToker with, with 10 million, you know, impressions every time they put something up. It's impossible. It's just not going to happen. That's right. And well, and then the, there's a lot to unpack. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm going a little too, too deep but, on it, but let me ask this because you touched on it quick. You touched on no, it no, no. about about the buyout and you were part of two buyouts. The first one was uh, a 17 X. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. It was, it was a, it was a payday for a lot of people. I would say. It was a good, it was a good day. Um, in 16, we sold complex for the first time to a JV, a joint venture Verizon and Hearst. And, you know, we had built this whole company on about $31 million <laughs> at that time. So we had not, you know, all of our competitors had raised hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars and to 15x what we have, but we were as big, if not bigger than them. And I had an opportunity to, um, you know, exit for all cash and put us in a very good situation. The investors made a lot of money. Our management team made a lot of money. Um, You know, uh, everybody involved did very well. It got taken care of and, and, and not just taken care of in like, oh, you know, there's a lot of companies right now who've raised all this capital and they raised yeah, it at such high multiples from a valuation perspective and also with preference stacks and other things like that, not to get super heavy into this. But a lot of these people that have worked for this company have realized that their equity is mm-hmm. valueless. People have spent 10, 15 Career, years, they're, their building, they're, they're, at, they're, they're behind such a preference stack and have such a bogey to get to from a valuation perspective before their equity kicks in at all, because it's not pro rata, right? You get paid less, so the investors get paid um, first, the employees get paid last, that's just how it goes. That's that's my point, right. So it's it's a tough situation and, uh, you know, because we had raised so little and done so much, everybody got to have a really nice, be in a nice situation. And then, you know, like Verizon got a little bored because they changed, they got out of media, like yeah. just like AT&T just did recently and realized like the content game and it's hard, right? So when, when they were no longer interested um, in in the ad game and the and that, that side of the content development game, it was like, well, let's have an opportunity to go take this thing for a walk. And luckily enough, we were able to find a good partner, a tremendously intelligent partner um, in, in, from a visionary perspective in, in BuzzFeed um, that aligned, that was very complementary to us. They were very audience centric. We're very brand centric. They're very automation oriented. We're very bespoke oriented. So instead of looking at that as a competitive situation, we're like, wait, wait a second, if you could put all those skill sets together, then you could build a great modern day media company. And now recapitalize complex, put some more money on the balance sheet, take advantage of a lot of their skill sets of things that are not our strengths, and then reca- like just recalibrate uh, the entire the way to think about the business going forward. So we got to to kind of check another box and and re up the business and the dollars and put everybody on my team in a very good situation as well. Like. You know, my president, Christian Baszler, became the COO. 
Um, my head of revenue, Edgar Hernandez, became the CRO. Justin Killing got promoted. Like all, a lot of our key people really got to elevate. And for me, it finally enabled me too because I knew it had a good home to be able to and kind of back turn a little the page bit. on yeah, my and not day, be to day, day to day. And that's a dream. Being an advisor, like not having to deal with like, not you know, putting HR out fires. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not. It's beyond <laughs> fires, my friend. Like. It is beyond fires, but you know, it, it's, it's hard running a media company, especially a media company that has iterated as much. It took a lot out of me for 20 years and it was a hell of a ride. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I also wouldn't wish it's it on my worst it. enemy. And, um, and it's, you know, mission accomplished for me to set them up to continue that journey and to be able to still be involved on an advisory perspective is very exciting. And, you know, like the big thing for me, um, not to bring it back to the beginning of this conversation, but the thing that I'm most proud of, it's amazing to have two exits with the same company. It's amazing to, for a guy who came from where I came from to be in the, to be able to do what I've been able to do for my family and change the trajectory of my entire family and, and their generations going forward. But, the thing that I'm most proud of is not how much money in the multiples we made for the investors. I am proud of those things, but that's not at the top of the list is what I believe complex did. It didn't just open other people's eyes to these categories, but I think, you know, we had a very diverse team that brought a lot to the table and we gave a lot of people who might not have gotten looks myself included for their positions consistently for 20 years. We gave people who probably would have been on the outside looking in, in a more traditional media place, great opportunities to sh not only show that they can, they can hold their own, but they can go and eat other people's lunch yeah, over and, win, and over and, and over sure. again. And, and that's my point is, you know, we did it as a team. Um, so many talented people. I could sit here and name hmm. 300, probably more, but like so many what we did is open people's eyes, not just to the categories and the topics, but I think to a different cohort. And I'm very proud of what we were able to do because of that and take a lot of the pretense out of it. That's a good way to put it. And, I'll, I'll, and obviously like taking care of people is the utmost. That's always the, one, the thing you want to do first. But I also I'll take it a step further and say that, you know, media companies now, like they're kind of, it's a much sexier business now, I think because I think because of what you did. And now you have like newsletters and YouTube properties, they can raise money at some of those crazy multiples you're talking about because of what you built. Do you, when you look, now you have like a 30,000 foot view. I think we're a part, I think no. we're a part of that. You're a big part of it, you know? No, 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 uh, Look, I mean, believe me, I do, I have plenty of <laughs> ego problems, but that um, if we want to be fair, accurate, and, and like, look, no, like a lot of my uh, peers have not exited yet. They've mm -hmm. raised a lot of money. Um, we didn't do it that way. We've, we are, our, our valuations have been exits, not bogeys to reach for. And I'm still waiting for a lot of those companies to exit. So let's see what yep. those things look like. But at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of people, there's a handful of brands and people who've kind of reset the media industry. I'm, we're just, I've been very lucky to be, and, and Complex is lucky to be one of those brands and, and we're some of those yeah. people that have done that. But That's a good way to put it. And then, and then I'll fast forward to now then, because you have this, 
you know, an advisor in the space, you're, you're an investor in a bunch of other companies, you see this probably a little bit differently than you did 20 years ago. When I think about, you know, what a 15 year old today is going to be spending their discretionary money on in terms of like culture and sneakers and clothes and music, everything is viral, everything's got to be a moment. When I think about monetizing content, and I'll talk about a couple of the properties that you were part of. So I think about like the hot ones case study is seriously one of like the most interesting stories and the way that that's changed the landscape of just video online. And you've told the story before about how much money the hot sauce makes the actual tangible product relative to the advertising sales. It's seriously one of the most fascinating and unexpected stories I've ever heard. And so I'm not even thinking about, you know, itself. sneaker shopping and everything else that went along with what the, these crazy properties you've built that are that are driven by this brand new culture of ingesting video differently. But what's what is the in your opinion, as we get to kind of a close in the conversation, what's the best way to make money off content right now? Does it require the high polish, the hot one style, you know, where it's like somebody oh. coming in doing a press junket? Well, I would hardly I would hardly call hot ones polished. I mean, dude. We drink, we drop a black sheet over a, uh, a cheap bar table from Walmart with another black sheet on it and two counter height chairs with 10 wings. That's all true. That sauces. might be true. But then, like, you mean, know, Scarlett Johansson shows up and a bunch of these A-listers have to stop there for their movies. Right. What does it get to but Hold that? on a second. But, right, but we, don't, we, don't pay any, we don't pay anybody and it's hardly high production. I mean, if you go back and listen to the first two seasons – I mean, half the, the, the sound. It's a little bit different. The first two seasons, definitely. Right you can feel, you can see where the check got, where yeah. they started making money yeah. for sure. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, look, is, is, I, I think you have, people have to look at things differently. You know, um, the narratives, like there's no middle of anything anymore, right? Let's talk about formats and let's talk about distributions because mm -hmm. that's what we were talking about before. Like now there's either super expensive, like Star Wars, Netflix, Marvel movies, you know, like insane shit with crazy budgets, nothing in between, or like indie stuff that is like super grassroots, gorilla, like, you know, it, and, and that's just the way the world is now, right? Like there's no middle of anything anymore. So you don't go halfway. I, what I, I think if you're on the come up, whether you're a big company or not, Unless, unless your expertise is in making like crazy CGI movies and other things like that. And those are anomalies of anomalies at this point. I think you have to be, you, I think what people have to be more cognizant of is timelines. You know, like narratives come in and out. Things come in and out much like by the time, you know, people used to be able to go, oh, well, here's what's hot. Let's go make a movie about it. And it would come out nine to 12 months later. If you waited nine to 12 months, dude, that shit is like jump. Talk about jump the shark. Like it's over by the time that comes out. So what you have to think about now, what I don't think enough people think about is more of the time. Like it, you know, you can experiment short, long, mid form, other things like that. I'm not saying everything has to be a podcast with a video camera and other things like that. And just the talking head stuff to me is getting a yeah. little saturated, like beyond saturated, but I think if you're gonna if you're gonna build what the content company of tomorrow is going to be, whether you're a single creator or an up and coming publishing brand, and I mean that in the most expansive way possible, I think you're gonna be able to tell very relevant stories very quickly. And when I say that, I don't mean in like time frames of like one minute, but I mean like, can you be early 
and better. You don't have to be first with the narrative, but can you be early and can you be better from like a, a better narrative, a smarter narrative, a different perspective, a fresh angle? Can you get in on a topic or a trend and bring something really unique to that and be early enough so it's not over, but but you're you're early enough to affect it and you're coming at it from a different perspective and then experiment across all those platforms because you and don't pick one spot like picking one spot in this day and age yeah, audience yeah. is too, it's too it's all it's it's moving too much too fast all over the place algorithms change you know um government regulations like you name it like you cannot afford so for me it's it's the time of the trend and the reaction to be able to bring, like to be able to participate in what's going on or are you relevant enough and creative enough or influential enough to actually define what one of those trends are? That's harder. Like that's that's much fewer people will be able to do that. But if you were to ask me a general question, it's like who can react quicker with differentiated content fast, that is differentiated nah, enough, fast enough. That's the first way to put that it. And, that's like, and, and I think your, I'll call it the two decades of complex, but obviously everything before kind of speaks to that too. Time, time can kill. And it's one of those things where it's got to be like good, fast and cheap. You know, the agency stuff where it's like pick two, you got to pick all three right now. There's really not a choice. And these kids. Well, the great, the great. Yeah, but, but you know what's beautiful? The expectations for all content minus like movies or like crazy high-end like series, the expectation is low. So spending the money, the you hit Quickly, diminishing yeah. returns so fast. That, but, but a lot of people, they, they get romantic of their own idea and they want to overspend against it. Or they want to, and I will tell you, here's the other thing. With all the creators I've met, and a lot, not the individual creators, but the creators who work for brands, they don't understand one concept. Done yeah. is better than perfect. And I will tell you, getting it out, getting, I'd rather you consistently get something out that's 95% as good as it should be than take the extra week to get that last 5% because the last 5% is the hardest and, and make something so quote unquote perfect because in this day and age with the way the audience is, ever, nothing ever. is ever perfect. Revenue over everything. If you have a board or you've taken money or you have people that are relying on you, you have to be making money. There's no way to do that if you're constantly sort of spinning through really expensive content, trying to figure out how we're going to release it, you know? Well, right. But, but pull a string on that. That's two, there's two ways to think about that. It's not just putting less pressure on yourself from a revenue perspective. It's how do you, if say your content budget's $5 million, would you rather produce five swings? Nah, give me, I'm trying to squeeze as much out as possible. Give me 50, give me 50 where I could play with more topics, more formats, more, more distribution platforms, better editing, like, so that it's, it's thought of and the perspectives are different. Like don't spend the money on the talent, like. I mean, I know that's a very unpopular but you could thing build to say, the talent. but you like did my viewpoint is, is well, that's my point is do it yourself. If you look at most of our talent, Sean Evans, um, Joe LaPuma, ah, it's um, homegrown. It's like know, almost yeah, it's like everybody like pulled up from hosts, double A. It's all inside out. Mm -hmm. It's all mm -hmm. inside out, not outside in. Like 
if you're so impactful and you're so and your brand is so powerful, why do you have to go outside to somebody else? That's the right question. Are you asking? You're asking me personal questions now. I so right? well, no, I challenge advertisers that I used to challenge the advertisers all the time. I'm like, you want best in class. You want all of this. So you're going to tell me that my host is not big enough when we have a show that does ten times the numbers. And by the way, it's. Our stuff is organic. Your stuff is all, the other stuff is all paid and they're buying talent. That is a quote unquote bigger name that you as a 45 year old CMO knows. But by the way, the 15 year olds could give two Damn. shits about who that is. Listen, you just, like, you just took the words real. out of my head. I don't want to keep it. I don't want to keep you much longer. So I'll, I'll shrink the last three, three, four questions to really quick hits. Like we have to do at the end of these shows, but I think you just put a lot of stuff in perspective for a lot of businesses, a lot of people with ideas who think in their head like, ah, no one's going to care if I do this. Taking those 50 swings and having two, three or four of those really pop, that becomes, in my mind, like you can architect where you're going to go next from what worked at that point and keep building. You'll do it quicker than trying to go with that giant swing and trying to figure it out and tinker with it until it's perfect. No question. Done, Done is perfect. better than perfect. On Done that note, let me ask you this. What is the, the biggest hit that you passed on, a content series, investment, or otherwise? Oh, Jesus. Um, honestly, um, it's more like, let me say this. It's not that we passed on a lot because we always kind of build stuff internally. Um, we should have invest. There's two things. Number one, we should have bought more of the original blogs that were part of our, our, our network. When at first we should have bought more of them because of the, not because of the blogs, yeah. but because of the talent that was at each of those from a writing perspective would have been better served in house. And then the second thing is, you know, we, we were the company that put Jesus and Marrow together. So I would have, would have liked to have at that time, it was just really bad timing for us. Yeah. to write a big check to get to elevate them and do a bigger deal. We should have. We didn't. It, we it, su it sucks to see that, that kind of fall apart um, now, too, knowing, knowing where it came from and how, 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 what a cultural phenomenon that was early when you guys were on it, you know? Yep. Shout out to go. Donnie Quack, who put them together. On Brilliant. that same note, you're a wine guy. I think anyone who follows you on social media would know that. But with all the cool stuff that came through the doors of Complex over the years, what's the thing that you collect that people wouldn't know about? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, here's the problem is like, I love, um, figurines and shit like that. Like I, I'm, I'm a big, uh, pop art fan in general. So I have a lot of, um, uh, you know, herrings or, um, some other things along those lines. It, it, it look, it's very difficult, um, it was very difficult to work yeah, a collector. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 very, you know, like I have a one of, like, here's my, probably my, one of my favorite things is I have a one of one of um, Bo Jackson mm. soul collector shoes. So it was Bo Jackson platform and it's the soul collector right. colors of the blue and the green on the Bo Jacksons. When I, we bought soul collector, Steve Mulholland, who I bought it from, gave me those. And he was like, I can't believe they made them. They were in your size. It just happened to be perfect. Um, that's one of my favorite things because it's like tied to an acquisition. I got a pair of That's one way of better ones, for anyone that doesn't know. Whatever perfect. was like on the cover of Soul Collector and then Bo Jackson's, those are two things that like, that was a, that meant you made it back then. If you had anything that was like the one that Soul Collector was talking about, much less Bo Jackson, that's crazy. 
Last one, what's the best money you ever spent? That could be an investment, a product, anything that you feel like it was the right, whether it was an investment or not, like this is it, this is the one. Wow. Um, I'm going to answer it in a weird way. Um, I took a humongous pay cut when I left Nat Geo to come work at Complex. I, and when I say humongous, I mean like half, like several hundred thousand dollar pay cut. And um, I did it. That That to me, that loss of money was an investment to me because... I'm like, I'm going to, I, there was no guarantee we were going to like be worth something like that. And there was no, you know, to me that that's an opportunity loss from a capital perspective. And that was the ultimate investment because I took my most valuable asset, which is time, not money. And I dedicated it to something that was um, not as direct, directly lucrative as other things. So, um, that's that's one step back, 20 steps forward. I don't see any other way that it would have worked out. That's good to hear. Rich, thank you so much for taking the time. I know that went a, a little bit long, but this is, a, I think I got my MBA on this, uh, on this podcast today. So I hope other people do too. That was a lot of fun. That was Rich Antoniello, episode 15. The episode went a little bit long. But Rich is really one of the unsung heroes of the current media landscape, and he's seen it all. So hopefully some of that resonated, especially if you're creating content or trying to merge art and commerce, which I know a lot of our listeners are. This coming week on Rally, a brand new category, movie props and memorabilia. And this one is super relevant to the combo we just had. It's the white tuxedo from Scarface worn by Al Pacino in the starring role. That IPO goes live on Tuesday, September 6th. It's $20,000, $5 per share. And then in sports memorabilia, we did the first ever stock split of an alternative asset this past week, making the share price of our 52 Mickey Mantle rookie card a bit more approachable for every investor. That's been reopened for trading right now with a ton of activity in the secondary market on the heels of the $12.4 million sale of an SGC 9.5 graded copy, our SGC 7 trading at around $500,000 as I record this. You can find it on Rally Trading Now. Finally, as a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimer on rallyroad.com before making any investment on Rally. All investments involve risk. This is no different. And past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back this fall with season two with an updated format that includes lots of video and some show and tell. We'll be in our brand new space here in Soho with some enormous names that I don't even want to tease yet in case they back out and I'll look crazy, but soon, I promise. But we're excited. I think you're going to be as well. Thank you to everybody who's been a part of season one. Check back soon.